Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cusai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished, Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy... The whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Well, thanks, John. Um, Hopefully that's got you all awake now. Um, It's not the happy, happy, joy, joy Bible reading you might have expected as we came to church this morning. Uh, My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great if you could keep uh, that passage of God's Word open. And also uh, in the news sheet, there's a sermon outline that'll help you uh, follow along uh, with uh, where we're going. Why don't I pray and we'll get stuck into Zephaniah. Um, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we um, do pray now that as we come to your word, that you might free our minds of distractions. Lord, help us to hear and understand what your word has to say. Lord, these words are difficult to hear. uh, But Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work 
in our hearts and in our minds to convince us of the truth of what you've uh, had recorded and that we might find the hope that is to be found in these verses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, I remember it clearly. It was a Monday afternoon. Uh, we were taking a drive uh, from one side of Sydney to the other. The drive should have taken about 30 minutes. But that afternoon, it took two hours. At one point on our drive, we had to stop completely. We had to pull into the awning of a service station as a one-in-a-hundred-year storm lashed that part of Sydney that we were in. Uh, I remember seeing hail like rocks from the sky, the size of cricket balls, uh, smashing windows and wrecking cars, turning car roofs into like dimples, like golf balls. Uh, There were winds gusting 230 kilometres an hour. They ripped off roofs. They brought down massive gum trees across streets and across power lines. They squashed houses and cars completely. The storm that we were caught in was so immense. Now, I was only 10 at the time, uh, but I remember vividly how dark it was. It was summer. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, The sun wouldn't be setting for another five hours. But as we drove along, we had to have our headlights on. Uh, And the streetlights came on. It was so dark. Uh, For about 20 minutes there, when the storm loomed and raged around us, it was so dark, it could almost have been night. And then with this kind of destruction all around us, the wind And the hail and the rain, they stopped. And then kind of came the first rays of sunshine as it broke through. Shortly, like only another 40 minutes later, we were bathed in glorious sunshine. It actually turned out to be a beautiful, sunny afternoon. Now, my experience that day, it's not a bad illustration of the structure of the book of Zephaniah, uh, the way that it ebbs and flows, and yet, despite the darkness, hope remains. Uh, We begin here in chapter 1 with these dark, dark storms of the catastrophe and the violence and the destruction that will come. It's a gloomy day where God's wrath is poured out in judgment. But as we move through the book of Zephaniah, we get these shafts of light, these, these, these shafts of sunlight peeping through, breaking through. And then it bursts forth in chapter 3 into this glorious sunshine. And chapter 3 is this glorious day of blessing and hope and promise where God restores his people and he gathers them to himself and he brings rescue and salvation for those who return to him. Despite all the judgment that we'll see in the first couple of chapters, hope does remain. Uh, But as Zephaniah begins, uh, bunkered down in the darkness, the darkness has closed in in chapter 1, as you probably heard, Uh, and we hear the warning from Zephaniah chapter 1 that the day of the Lord's judgment is near. The day of the Lord's judgment is near because of the sins of the people. Uh, Before we dive into chapter 1, it's it's fair to say uh, that Zephaniah is off the beaten track. Um, I know people have been going to church for a, a long time who've never ever kind of even really read or heard a sermon on Zephaniah. So a bit of background might be a little bit helpful. Uh, If you're wondering, if if you're new to church and you're you're hearing Zephaniah, you're like, I've never heard of that before. All these people around me must know all about it. Don't worry. No one has any idea, really. Um, Zephaniah, to begin with, it's in the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible that looks forward to the coming of Jesus. Uh, It's one of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, Zephaniah wrote these words uh, from God to God's people in about 620 BC. That's about 600 years before Jesus. Uh, uh, that date puts it a couple of hundred years, 
uh, after the nation of God's people had split in two. Uh, there was a civil war and there was a split in Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And about a hundred years before Zephaniah wrote, the northern kingdom of Israel had just been wiped off the map by the Assyrians. And at the time of writing, uh, the people of God, Judah, they've seen what's happened to the northern kingdom who turned away from God and were wiped away. And they're watching the rise of another global superpower just over their back fence, Babylon. And the Babylonians, they're kind of coming closer and they're coming closer and they're coming closer. And the danger is real. And into this situation, the prophet Zephaniah writes, and he writes with a warning for Judah that dark days are ahead. Uh, But right from the outset, we see that these words from the prophet Zephaniah, they're not just his words. We see that actually God is speaking to his people. Uh, Have a look there in verse 1. It's the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. These are words of God. This is not just the words of an angry prophet. These are the words of God about the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment where everything will be destroyed. And these are words for his people, words of warning. Words of warning that on the day of the Lord, everything will be completely destroyed. And that's what we see first. We see a picture of complete destruction. Chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. It's pretty full on. What's going on here is actually God saying that he is going to undo his creation. Uh, The way that things are listed out here is quite specific. This is an exact reversal of the creation story we read in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, if if you're familiar with it, uh, God makes the fish of the sea, and then God makes the birds of the air, and then God makes the beasts of the field, and then he makes the people. Kind of fish, birds, beasts, people. And here in Zephaniah chapter 1, it's in reverse. Uh, God says, I'm going to wipe out the people, and then I'm going to wipe out the beasts, And then I'm going to wipe out the birds and then the fish. It is a complete reversal. God is going to undo his creation. He's going to wipe the slate clean. Uh, But for the average Joe living in Judah uh, with his uh, flat in Jerusalem, uh, he could possibly be hearing these words and thinking, great, finally, God's going to come in and God's going to finally come and deal with all those wicked people out there. But, you know, I'm one of God's people. I've got all these promises, so I'm going to be okay. He could be saying, bring on the day of the Lord. That's what I'm after. But then comes verse 4. The darkness of the storm will descend on them as well, because Judah has sinned like the nations. Judah has sinned like the nations. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. You see, this darkness, this destruction, it's going to fall on Judah and Jerusalem as well. And why? Why, do they, why are they in the firing line? Well, we read they're calling out to Moloch. That is, they're praying to foreign gods. They're worshipping the starry host. That is, they're engaging idolatry. They're giving their devotion and their worship to things that were created instead of the creator. And it's not just that something, 
This isn't just kind of something that's kind of happening kind of around the fringes of Judah, uh, in the shadows or in their private browser. This is the priests. This is the religious leaders. They are involved. This, this is a sign that Judah is actually rotten to the core. And verse 6 is a good summary of what's going on here. They have turned away from following the Lord. Judah, God's special people, have become like the nations around them. But it continues, verse 8, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I'll punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I'll punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple with their, of their gods with violent and, violence and deceit. Now, some of those charges seem a little bit strange. Um, we might think, hey, what's wrong with their fashion choices? Um, you know, verse 8, I'll, I'll punish those who are clad with foreign clothes. We, what's wrong with walking funny in the temple? Verse 9, I'll punish those who avoid stepping on the threshold. What's so bad about that? Well, these were patterns and these were traditions of worship of the nations who were around them. These were acts of devotion. These were ways of obedience to foreign gods. But Judah, the people of God, they were to be different. They were to be holy. That means they were to be set apart, distinct from all of those around them. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God had given them his law. God had blessed them with the promised land. They were God's treasured possession. And right from their very formation as a nation, they were to be separate. They were to be unique. They were to be distinct from all the other people around them. They belonged to God. They did not belong to Molech or Baal or any other God. And they were to be distinct. And they were to be distinct so that they might point the nations to God rather than become like the nations. And that was to shape who they were and how they worshipped. Now, here's what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, God said this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I think the words might come up on the screen. God said, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. They can't say that they haven't been warned. They're they're to be a one God people. They're to remain faithful to Yahweh who saved them and blessed them. But no, they've turned their back on him. They've run to the arms of other gods. They've hedged their bets. They're playing the field. They've brought other gods and foreign worship right into the heart of of the house of the Lord. I've actually seen this sort of thing happen a bit today. Um, I know a guy who calls himself an Anglican Buddhist. Uh, over the years, he's been a pillar of his Anglican church. He's been a parish councillor and a warden. It's kind of like our admin team and trustees. Uh, he's even been on the committee responsible for appointing the new vicar of his parish. He goes to church every Sunday to worship God. And Monday to Friday, he goes to his Buddhist meditation. And he's involved in a process to get a a, a new yurt uh, established in his community. So they've got somewhere where they can go and meet and meditate. He's a highly educated man, but he's happy to pick and mix his gods. What ends up happening is he actually ends up fashioning a god in his own image, doesn't he? One that agrees with him. 
one that's just a projection of his own worldview. But the God of the, the, God of the Bible, he will have nothing of it. He is a jealous God, it says. He won't share his worship with anyone or anything else. And why should he? He made the world and everything in it. He made you and me to worship him alone, to know him, to love him, to serve him alone as his people. And so to worship anyone or anything else is to betray the God of the universe, to betray the God who made us. It's to say to the God of heaven and earth, you are not enough for me. And that's exactly what Judah has done. And so judgment is coming on the day of the Lord for them. Now, the reason they're doing this, the reason they thought they could hedge their bets, the reason they thought they could play the field, the reason they thought they could introduce foreign worship is because they didn't think God was ever going to do anything about it. They'd become complacent. Judah thought, sure, uh, all these sins and stuff, all this syncretism, all this idolatry, it's fine because God's not going to do anything. We don't need to worry about it. Well, we see this in verse 12. Uh, verse 12, uh, Zephaniah warns at that time, God warns at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like that wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Don't worry, guys. God's not going to do a thing. Do whatever you like. They were thinking about God like a dormant volcano, like the, the volcanoes we have in Australia. Um, in Australia, another name for a volcano is a hill. Uh, it's lifeless, it's, it's inactive. The last time a volcano erupted in Australia was like more than 5,000 years ago, ages, uh, ages and ages ago. Uh, there's no risk of any volcano uh, popping anytime soon. And that's how Judah sees God. Maybe there was some action from God in the past, but that was ages ago. He's dormant now. There is no danger. But in reality, God is more like a Kiwi volcano, a real and present danger. Uh, a few weeks ago, we took the kids up uh, Ruapau. Uh, we rode the gondola up uh, from Whakapapa, and we, uh, you get to the top of the gondola, and you, uh, there's some walks you can do around the top. But when you get to the top of the gondola and you get to the start of the walking tracks, there's this big sign. Uh, I've got a picture of the sign here. Danger. That's as far as you're allowed to go. There is an exclusion zone around the top of the mountain. Uh, chatting with some friends overseas, they thought it was even stupid that we're even on the mountain, uh, let alone uh, going up to the exclusion zone. The crater lake is warming. Steam is emerging. There is nothing dormant about this volcano. The people around it are getting prepared that it could erupt at any moment. Judah think that God is like a dormant volcano. When in reality, his righteous anger, his day of the Lord could come at any moment. Verse 12 again, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like the wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses will be demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near near and coming quickly. Judah's idolatry, their complacency, their mocking of God that he doesn't care, that he's not going to do anything. Because of all of that, the darkness of the day of the Lord is near for them. 
It is coming quickly. It will fall on them as it falls on all the nations. And that eruption, the destruction, it will be horrific. It was a terrible picture we read, wasn't it? The picture that we read of the, of the destruction on the day of the Lord, it will make the storms and the cyclones and the volcanic eruptions that we know, it will make them look like a whisper. Have a look at verse, how uh, Zephaniah describes it from verse 14. The day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. The cry on, that day, on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that that they will grope like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust. And their entrails like dung, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end to all who live on the earth. There's no way to sugarcoat this, is there? God's word promises that there is a dark and horrible day coming, a day where destruction will be unlike anything we've ever experienced before. I don't know about you, but I find that there's some shocking images coming out of Ukraine at the moment. Images of uh, burnt-out tanks, of planes shot down, of buildings blown up. But the worst images are ones like this. Images of women and children in distress. Mothers cradling their injured child, weeping, wailing, as they're caught in the destruction of war as they're trapped in the middle of all this violence and death. But the prophet Zephaniah says, the day of the Lord is coming and these photos tragically will be nothing compared to that day. These terrible moments in history, as, as genuinely horrific as they are, they'll be nothing compared to the total destruction on the day of the Lord. A day of darkness and gloom and wrath and distress and anguish and pain. And God's word promises that no part of his creation will be spared. Zephaniah chapter 1 is a dark, dark storm. God is coming. He is coming against sin. He is coming against idolatry. He is coming against complacency. And on the day he comes, everything will be destroyed by his powerful judgment. Now, this is not something people want to hear. I don't like saying this any more than you enjoy hearing it, right? A lot of us prefer to hear about the God of love, the God of peace, the God of compassion and mercy and grace. And for that reason, there are some people who will say to you, I like the God of the New Testament, Jesus meek and mild, that's the God for me, that's the God I'm after. I don't want anything to do with that angry God in the Old Testament, the one that, uh, who's kind of angry and wrathful and jealous, I don't want anything to do with him. But hold on a sec, before we go too far down that road, let me read to you some of the words of Jesus, meek and mild. Here's what Jesus says when he describes the coming of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13. He says this. He says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come 
and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes, Jesus, the God of the old, the God of the new, he is the same. He is the one God, the true and living God. He is the God of grace and mercy, and he is also the God of judgment and wrath. And if we've got a problem with God's judgment, then we have a real, real problem with Jesus. Yes, Jesus, meek and mild. Of all the voices in the Bible, Jesus is actually the most clear and the most consistent when it comes to the reality of the judgment that is to come, the wrath and the dire consequences for those who refuse God's offer of repentance and faith. Actually, if we want to do away with the judgment of God, Jesus' death on the cross makes no sense whatsoever. You see, there's nothing unfair about the judgment of God, uh, the judgment that will come on the day of the Lord. You see, when all is revealed, when we see God in all of his glory and his holiness, when we begin to even comprehend only for a moment our, our wickedness and our sin, as horrific as everything will be, there will be no one on that day who will put their hand up and say, excuse me, uh, this is all a little bit unfair, um, this is a bit over the top. No, when on that day we will see things perfectly we'll see the corruption and the idolatry and the complacency and the wickedness for exactly what it is. And we'll see that God is just. And we'll see that we need him to judge. We'll see that it is right for him to judge and to deliver on the warnings and to deliver on his promises. And so this day is coming and it is a hard truth. It is a very hard truth. I was so tempted this morning to just spill over to chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 because there's a little bit more hope there. But we need to sit here and deal with this uncomfortable truth. This is a hard truth. It's a hard truth, especially if you're not prepared. It's especially devastating if you've got family and friends for whom this is their future. But we need to wrestle with this, not shy away from it. Uh, that's not to say we ever, ever will become comfortable with it. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. It ought to shake us up. But the real difference is, is what do you do with that discomfort? That's what makes all the difference. What do you do with the discomfort of the day of the Lord? In our discomfort, we can be tempted to switch off, to shy away from things, to, to try and water things down or, or find a way to make this all a little bit more palatable. Uh, but to do that, we'll very quickly begin to sound like verse 12, won't we? The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. You see, we can't ignore it. We can't dismiss it, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel. But there is something else we can do with our discomfort. There's something else we can do with our discomfort. Our discomfort can give us a sense of urgency, a right sense of urgency. Urgency for ourselves and urgency for others. Because this day of the Lord is coming. This day of the Lord is near. And there is only one way we can possibly avoid it. There's only one way we can escape the wrath that God will pour out on that day. I, 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 I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because it's the best way I've ever heard it explained to me. How do you avoid the wrath of God on the day of his judgment? Uh, well, 
I grew up in Australia. We did, we did bushfires. You guys in New Zealand do earthquakes. Uh, we did bushfires. That was the constant risk that we had to be prepared for. Uh, and when a bushfire is on its way, you need to get out of the way and seek shelter. Uh, but if you can't, if you can't outrun the bushfire, uh, the bushfire survival plan that got put in our letterbox said this. It said, the place of last resort is where you need to go when you can't get away. Uh, and the safest place to shelter, the place of last resort, is the place where the fire has already burnt. Shelter somewhere where the fire has already passed. And with the warning of God's righteous judgment that is coming, the place to find shelter is where God's righteous judgment has already fallen, where it has already been poured out. And God has provided that shelter that we need. Hear these words from John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see, Jesus is the place where God's wrath has already fallen. If we find refuge and shelter in Him, God's wrath has been taken for us. But if we reject the Son, we will not see life, and God's wrath remains. And so, can I urge you, let your discomfort from Zephaniah chapter 1, let your discomfort at the day of the Lord drive you to the cross drive you to Jesus, to the place where God's terrible judgment has already fallen in your place. And let your discomfort give you that urgency that you need to warn others of the darkness and danger that lies ahead. Uh, On the 26th of December, Boxing Day, 2004, uh, John Croston, uh, an English tourist, was swimming in Phuket when suddenly the water around him receded. It seemed to disappear. Boats just kind of started sitting on the sand. There were fish flapping, gasping for breath. And afterwards he said, having studied some geology, in an instant I was overtaken with the overwhelming certainty that we were about to experience a tsunami. And so what John did is he bolted from the water up the beach to the resort, screaming, tsunami, tsunami. And he ran through the resort like a lunatic, screaming at people, urging them all to flee. Afterwards, John would say, I considered myself a relatively reserved person. He was English, after all. Um, Not prone to overreaction. But on that beach, I left all my inhibitions behind, he said. You see, John knew that that wave wasn't an idea that he had that worked for him and might not work for someone else. That wave was a reality. And so nothing would keep him quiet. And and tragically, those who refused to hear his warning lost their lives on that day. Now, do you think John cares whether anyone thought he was weird at the time? Or rather, do you think he would not be able to sleep if he just wandered off the beach and didn't say anything at all? Zephaniah warns us the coming of the day of the Lord. And with the same urgency, we need to find the words to warn others around us. We need to tell people that they are in great danger, terrible danger. But we also need to tell them that there is a great saviour. There is a great saviour, Jesus. And I'll finish with these words from Billy Graham, the famous evangelist. 
Uh, He sums it up for us like this. He says, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have already come through the storm of judgment. We have already come through the storm of judgment. It happened at the cross. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the the darkness of this day that we read in Zephaniah chapter 1 is horrific. But Lord, we come to the cross knowing that your wrath has been poured out there for us. Lord, help us to have the urgency to cling to Jesus and to lead others to Jesus so they too might be saved. And Lord, we do pray all these things in his name. Amen.